Welcome to the Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast, where we explore the Literature Prize's social, ideological, and institutional functions as the most recognized literary honor in the world. Amidst mounting skepticism towards the legitimacy and credibility of the Nobel as an arbiter of global literary excellence, its status as the preeminent literary prize remains. However, our understanding of the uses of the Literature Prize's prestige has yet to be fully fleshed out. We believe it is important to think about what we stand to gain and lose by preserving the global significance of the Nobel. So in this podcast series, we speak with scholars and writers from around the world to discuss the Nobel Prize in Literature's prominence as a signifier of meaning, a structuring of discourse, and even a narrative motif in different cultures and societies. Welcome to the Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast. Today, we have Susie, a novelist, essayist, editor of writings about Hong Kong. Her novel, Habits of a Foreign Sky, was on the shortlist of the Man Asian Literary Prize. Her short story, Famine, was part of the 2006 O. Henry Prize Stories Collection and um, basically on a lot of college literature reading lists as well, as I've noticed uh, in, in a Google, simple Google search. Um, so yeah, I'm really happy to have Susie with us today because oftentimes uh, we've been talking to uh, academics and today we have not only a, a writer who writes about criticism and essays, but also uh, as a accomplished creative writer. Uh, and of course, our podcast being about the Nobel Prize in Literature, I think um, we should have a lot of very interesting insights to uh, generate from this podcast conversation. Um, so Susie, like I mentioned, you are a very experienced and accomplished writer and um, you have prizes, you, you're very widely published as well in terms of creative writings and also your, your essays. So I think in a way, you do have a successful background in terms of being a writer. Um, but maybe I can ask you about what you think success means to you as a writer. Well, really, because I am the age I am now, you know, I think what it ultimately means to me as a writer is uh, success means being able to continue writing and, you know, publishing a little bit, mostly to be able to live this life of a writer. Um, that's what I most wanted, I realized, as the years went by, because, I mean, I've always had other jobs and um, I still have. I still work, you know. Um, and while the work is fulfilling in its own way, the most satisfying work I've ever done is that as a writer. Um, I just want to be able to continue living that life where I um, with other writers. I can communicate with publications and be published and have some readers. You know, it's um, probably a lot less about monetary success because I haven't depended so much on the income from writing to, to live. I was always able to get other work. Um, and, you know, I think ultimately, I'm, as long as I can still, you know, I, I, I live in a house surrounded by books, <laughs> which for me is, you know, as I get older and, and I will probably wind down some of the work I do, I want to really just keep reading and writing and talking to writers if I can. You know, that, that would be my ideal answer to what being successful as a writer is. You mentioned that uh, you, you've defined success right now as living the life of a writer. Um, 
Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? You、mm-hmm. mentioned, you know, like getting published, but aside from getting published here and there, and just keep、mm-hmm. writing and reading books,、um, anything else specifics? Maybe I don't know. Like, do you enjoy simply、uh, not exactly like a desk job, nine to five job, but you know, it has freedom to your life or like? Well, I think one of the things that the life of a writer embraces. Is if I had a schedule that regularly allowed me to just get up very early in the morning and write because I prefer to write early in the morning. Now I can write at any time of the day. I taught myself how to do this, but、um, I would prefer to be able to like get up in the morning, have my cup of tea or coffee or whatever, sit down and write for as long as it makes sense, and then to be able to spend the day to know that my days that the, as I look ahead into my weekly schedule. Oh, today I'm going to be talking to somebody like you. Another day I'll be、um, maybe meeting with some other writers, or I will be、uh, traveling somewhere to give a reading, or you know that kind of life where it's always about reading and writing and writers. You know, because I enjoy the company of writers probably more than anybody else.、Um, and also, I would like that life to have a certain amount of solitude. I don't need a lot of social life. You know, I never have. Um, I mean, I, I enjoy it, and I like to have some of it.、Um, but I like to have enough solitary time to just read and write and loaf. <laughs> I like to loaf.、Mm. I don't want to always have my head filled with like one of the things I don't like about academia. It's too full of critical thinking, and some of、mm. that critical thinking is good on the one hand. On the other hand, it can also be spinning in its own wheels and, and doing rather ridiculous things and and being sort of. You know, never really committing to anything because that's the way academic thinking and writing is like. You know, and I just get very tired of it sometimes.、Mm. No, no, I think you you definitely make a good point. You know about academia and writing. I suppose.、Uh, I mean, like creative writing,、uh, not for an academic audience, right? Like academics,、mm-hmm. I feel like we often try to balance all of the try to be、oh, objective. Yeah, sure. You know, like yeah. and、uh, it's. Um, we can be opinionated, but oftentimes we have to hedge a lot of things, right? Whereas hedging、um, is what I don't like. Yeah, <laughs>、oh, yeah. <laughs> particularly I think for your writings, right? Like when I was reading your essays and、uh, short stories,、um, very distinctly I noticed is like、uh, you're you're very、uh, very direct, you know,、mm-hmm. um, a very you, you have point in commentary,、um, and so.、Uh, Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that, and maybe that's the reason why I think it's important, you know, to、uh, have a writer as yourself, you know, to come on this podcast because,、um, you know, when we've been talking to academics so far about the Nobel Prize, and we haven't really gotten to, okay, what do the writers think about this prize,、mm-hmm. you know, like, and so maybe we can ask you a little bit about this prize in general because you mentioned that like you don't necessarily rely on writing. Mm-hmm. To uh, sustain um, your current lifestyle, but then prizes kind of do help in a big way. Oh yes, not, of course,、yeah. they help your career for、right. sure. Yeah. So what?、Um, how do you consider like does prizes fit into also like your current、uh, model of success, or do you think?、Mm-hmm. Um, like yeah, what is your relationship with prizes then? Because you now, of course, you are a very accomplished writer. You've been on a very prestigious prizes shortlist as well. So, what what do you think about prizes? Well, it's interesting. When I was younger, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to win this prize, that prize, and everything else? But as I got older, one of the things I realized, and this was perhaps just a condition of having been born in Hong Kong and not as a 
local Chinese, but considered foreign as an Indonesian citizen. So I was like a little bit foreign. And then later being an American, becoming an American citizen, but not being like a quote real American because I wasn't born there, you know, and then writing about my writing covers a lot of things, but a lot of it has to do with Hong Kong. It's, it's somehow related to Hong Kong. A lot of it. Um, I was not qualified for a lot of Hong Kong prizes or British prizes mm. or Commonwealth prizes. And in some cases I wasn't even considered quite right for like, for example, there's an Asian American prize, which I've judged twice. But <laughs> first, when I first became a part of that organization, they said, you're not really quite, you're not really writing quite Asian American enough work. So after a while, I sort of began to ignore prizes because it was like, I don't, I don't fit into the construct of what most prizes are. So many prizes are national in nature, right? Mm. So in Hong Kong, obviously, if you're, you have to be a Chinese language writer to really, for, for Hong Kong to really think in terms of its prizes for you. So be like, like something like Sai Sai, term, people like that. I understand that that makes much more sense, you know? So I wouldn't expect to be considered in the same place as they are. The Commonwealth Prize, I was one, somebody tried to nominate me for that. It's like, because I'm writing about the Commonwealth. I've actually mm, yeah. even been invited to speak at a Commonwealth um, kind of conference, the Commonwealth Literature Conference. Um, but I didn't qualify because I was not a national of the Commonwealth. I was a national of America at that time, you know. So, and I can't tell you how many times I've been invited to do things, asked to do things where maybe if you're an American, it's one thing. And if you're not an American, it's another thing. And everyone always asks me, am I American? And I have been an American citizen since I was 33 years old. I am now <laughs> 68, you know, and I still, yes, I am an American. But because I was nationalized and I'm a first generation, I don't fit into, I mean, like, I love Maxine Hong Kingston's work, for example, or um, Chang Rui Li. I, mean, I read a lot of the Asian Americans. I can understand, I can really relate to a lot of what they're writing about, but I didn't come up the way they did. My concerns were different. You know, I didn't have to consider the question of um, how, I, although I asked myself, how Chinese am I really? Mm -hmm. I, my Asian-ness is not an issue to me because I was born Asian. I was born in Asia and being in Asia doesn't seem strange. And I can speak Chinese, you know, I can even read Chinese, you know? Um, so to me, it's like, I don't have these questions of identity because I was raised in a white space. You know, mm. so I mean, I have a different kind of identity question. It's more intra-Asia, you know. Mm. So when I realized that I'm, I once wrote a piece which I never published actually, where I I was it won me a prize. It was an unpublished manuscript that won me, you know, a New York fellowship, New York State fellowship, which is the best New York State prize you can get, and. Um, <laughs> I remember my, my agent didn't want to represent it though. He said, they'll never sell. It was a kind of a mix between a memoir and fiction. And I remember sort of having done some research for a diversity sort of company. And I had been uh, looking at the population of America. And at that time, this was 1980, I guess, you know, the population of America was 1.97% Asian. 1.97%. And in that 1.97%, they included people of Arabic, you know, <laughs> culture, um, all the Pacific Islanders and the Inuit people. And I'm like, 
they're not Asians, you know? And so the definition of Asian, that has since grown to something like almost 10% now. It's not quite 10%. Mm. So, I mean, so when you look at it in that scale, I go, well, I get it. I mean, uh, Asians are kind of invisible in this country. So if you're Asian American, it's very much about advocacy. It's very much about being heard. It's very much about understanding Asian American history, much of which, of course, I have also engaged with just by virtue of being here, you know, the Asian Exclusion Act, things like that. But my ancestors didn't go through that, you know? Mm -hmm. My ancestors went through something different. And um, yeah, so, Mm. and, and, and I didn't have to go to Hong Kong or China and have people look at me and say, and speak in Chinese. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't speak Chinese. You know, I, I don't have that problem. So it's very, very different. Um, so when you don't fit into the kind of construct around which prizes are usually defined, because for years, the, and even now, the Nobel Prize is very much a country by country sort of thing. If you look at the, the, the language about each prize winner, it's how that person's writing fits into the construct of the literature mm. of her country. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. You, in a way, what you're driving towards is how prizes function as almost like a preservation of a, a, a nation's identity, right? Oh, yeah. So, Very so in a way, you are selecting writers or awardees based on, like from what I've heard from your experience, it's kind of like, it's not really about your writing, it's almost about your profile. Do you think so? Yes, I think so. Yeah? Think in part is that. Now, obviously, I think the literary prizes, generally, because I, I looked closely at both the Booker and the Pulitzer, because of work I've done in the past and somewhat the Nobel too, but not as much. Um, but I've always been somewhat interested in Nobel because I've read a lot of Nobel writers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like world literature. I always have read literature in translation. And sometimes it's like, I would never have read any Egyptian literature if I, you know, if Mahfoud had not won the Nobel Prize, you know, because I wouldn't have known any, you know, wow. and sometimes, I mean, you can only know so much in, in, in yeah. life, you know, and, you know, I can't know everything about Arabic literature, for example, but I can know when somebody wins a prize or their, their book becomes prominent in some way, or they're like a big bestseller. And then so I can at least say, oh, okay, so what's that like? What's that about? So the, the, the prize is bringing to the fore the literature that you might not know about. Um, and so that's, it's useful. And you know, generally, they, there is some literary merit to it. Um, sometimes you can argue, I can disagree with prizes, but generally, you know, I have to say, you know, like, okay, so so-and-so won, and I may not like her or his work, but I, I can see the literary merit, you know? Just like you would with any literature. And I teach, I teach writers and literature that I don't necessarily like, but have a certain literary value and merit because it's a good teaching text for my creative writing students. I want them to read. In fact, one of the things I say to my students is, you must understand what you really like, what you don't like, and why. And then you understand how to be a writer. Um, I, I definitely agree with you. Uh, maybe I also want to follow up on one more thing. Previously, you mentioned that you were also on judging uh, yes, American judging panels, lit- yeah. literature uh, pan- committee panels. And um, I'm just wondering when you're on those panels, mm-hmm. since you're like on, on the receiving ends of like you're on both ends of it, right? As, a, mm-hmm. as, as an awardee or someone being considered for the prizes and on the, as a judge, 
do you also find yourself having to comply to those sort of the functions of the prize? It's not really about the writings, but more about somebody's profile. Do you think so? Or like, depends what kind of prize it is. You know, I've I've judged state fellowships, for example, right. Of state. I don't even live in. And so those are just constrained by, you have to be a resident of that state. Oh yeah. yeah, I'm just looking at a, 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 a whatever. And then I've judged for publications that were giving a prize for the best creative nonfiction piece or the best short story. And then I judge those on the basis of, well, how good a short story is it? How good a literary essay is this, you know? Um, and of course, some of it is also my taste, you know? I mean, obviously, um, because I prefer certain kinds of writing to other, but let's say like, for example, I, I prefer like in narrative, I prefer straight ahead narrative way. You know, somebody's telling a story, because I'm a, I'm a storyteller, I like stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, versus, say, a more lyric kind of essay. But if I have two candidates and the lyric essayist is actually the better writer, then I will give the prize to the lyric essayist, you know, even though I actually maybe enjoy reading narrative essays more. So, you know, you have to try to suspend your own prejudices of form, in in my case, um, for fiction. Like, I prefer longer short stories rather than flash fiction. But if there's a really good flash fiction, I'm not going to say it's not good, you know? Um, Mm. So I think because, you know, good writing is a a combination of a number of things. It's how well it it works within that form, how well, um, you know, if it's about storytelling, whether the story comes through, about the characters. It's also about language, how well a writer uses language. And of course, I'm judging um, literature in the English language. So I look at that English language and, you know, depending whether the the prize is like right now I'm judging for Singapore, for instance. Mm. Um, so I'm, I, I like Singapore English. So, you know, I have to think about a Singapore writers, if they only write in British English, that's, that wouldn't be Singapore. Right. So, so obviously you, you, you look at the language in the construct of the country because it's a Singapore prize, you know, or if I'm judging in Hong Kong, again, Hong Kong English is different from American or British English, you know? So um, that kind of thing. So I, I, I look at it in, in a number of dimensions and I've never had to judge a prize that maybe, I'm trying to remember if there was ever a prize I judged which had a very specific kind of criteria. I, mm. I like what you're asking. I don't really think so. But I think for some, from my experience, most literary prizes, there's a certain trust in the people they hire as judges to kind of be able to but i know that i have disagreed with other judges Mm. i think prize is such an interesting thing and perhaps the the more prestigious it gets the higher the bigger scale it gets the i think ironically it it gets it gets less and less about the literature perhaps i i maybe or maybe not i'm not sure that's another thing that i i've sort of discovered in my study of the Nobel Prize, a lot of people complain about the outcomes of it, mm-hmm. and you know, like this person doesn't deserve it, or this person should deserve mm-hmm. it, blah blah. But it, I've, I've discovered that you know these complaints are just really, to be honest, not really that meaningful, at least from an academic sense, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, prizes are subjective, right? And so yeah. it, it is what it is, and you either pay attention to them or you don't. And so here, that's another question I want to ask you about is like. If prizes are so subjective, in a way, it's just a very small group of people, of course, respected members of the community. But nevertheless, 
essentially they have to pass judgment uh, on works of literature and then give, decide, okay, this person gets first place, second place, third place, winners, losers. Do you think that type of competition is appropriate or how does that relate to literature? Mm-hmm. Well, That's you know, as, as we know, um, Moby Dick, okay? Right. He, his work was, I mean, the, the, the novel in its yeah. day was right. completely disregarded. It is right. now canonical in English literature. Yeah. So I think um, one of the things when you think about literature, something that is popular in its time or becomes very well known in its time can be completely disregarded in the future. So the question then becomes is, is literature something that we think about um, over a historical period of time? Does time matter in the, the thought about it? For me, it always has, you know, because um, I remember actually coming to some kind of glimmer of understanding as a, as a young kid. I was in the library, Hong Kong Public Library. You know, it's a children's section and adult section. Mm-hmm. And I kept wanting to get into the adult section. <laughs> and I thought, you know, like, I just hit the right age. I was like 12, 30, whatever. And I was allowed to go in. And I remember standing there, and you know, this is back in Hong Kong in the sixties. You know, I didn't even understand the concept of what a writer really was. But I'm, I just, yeah, I like to read books. And I was looking at a bookshelf full of books, and I looked across all these names. And you know, I was studying English literature, of course, in school. And the teacher says, "Oh, so and so is famous. So and so is, you know, you know, Shakespeare is important, all this." And I'm looking at all these names of writers and titles of books, and I think don't know who any of these people are. I don't know who any, mm. of, any of these books are. And then it, it struck me then that so much of this could just disappear. It's ephemeral. I think that was an early sense of what, what lasts and what doesn't last. Because, I mean, you know, several centuries later, we're still reading the Tang and Sung poets and we're still reading Shakespeare. But we're not reading perhaps the most popular writers in their day. You know, we don't even know who they are. Um, and the same, if you look at, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the novel, if you look at the 19th century when so many novel, novels were becoming the big thing. And it was not just in, in English, but in Chinese as well, and, and across the world, you know, and the novel was emerging as a form. And there were like all these popular writers and, and who, who made a lot of money in their day, you know, um, between the 19th, 20th century. And the majority of them, you'll never hear of again. Mm. So I think there's a difference between it's still literature because literature is basically published books and whatever stories, you know, a lot of things come under the rubric of what we call literature, but then there's what perhaps in the academy we think of as literature, which is something of a kind of cultural aesthetic value, right? That somehow survives over time. And then five centuries from now, we're still teaching it um, or we're still reading it. Because not all of it will survive. And then, of course, we have the complication today of the internet and digital literature or digital forms. And we wonder what will be preserved. I mean, mm. the paper library is going away, as we know. Mm. So, I mean, this this adds to the mix of what is interesting. I mean, if you think about yes. Gutenberg and you think about, you know, the internet, I'm like, oh, here we are, two, two, two ends of a spectrum. Yeah. 
For sure. I um, I mean, you, you mentioned the internet, like there's just so much writings out there now, um, or basically not just writings, but anything, anything of products yes. of sorts, right? Just like a sea of them now with the internet. So I feel like you do need some sort of mechanism to sift through it. Like you mentioned uh, earlier, you know, like if you, if, Mafus hadn't won the Nobel Prize, you probably mm-hmm. wouldn't have some sort of entry point into mm-hmm. Egyptian literature, Egyptian culture. Yeah. And so maybe one thing that the prizes serve as a function is a type of canonization, but maybe on an even more general level is simply just to preserve or help people to, you know, like draw attention, right? To write I mean, I think yeah. that um, the Nobel has tried to do that. But we have to say that I, you know, I, I'm pretty certain that some of the Nobel winners will probably not be that important in the future. You know, sure, for sure. Um, yeah, during their time. Yeah, uh, Horace Engel uh, has written about this. Um, he he did a sort of st- statistical survey of the borrowing records uh, in the Swedish uh, Stockholm Library, and mm-hmm. he found that a substantial number of Nobel laureates actually had like very, very few borrowing records. Yes. Like people don't yes. read them anymore, which right. is kind of counterintuitive to what we think about the Nobel yes, Prize. Yes, that's right. Um, which is quite interesting. Um, and on the other hand, there are other winners who, uh, or, or other people who at that time were contenders for the prize and didn't win. And we're still reading later, you know? So that's, it's hard to say. I mean, I guess prizes are a kind of winnowing effect, but to, so I think literature, the way it, it, you know, like what becomes canonized, what becomes, you know, remains, what, what survives. Um, there's so many different things that winnow it out. Some has to do with um, publishing, what stays in print, okay? Some has to do with prizes that, that sort of like canonize somebody or make somebody important. And something just has to do with um, the t- time and tide, you know? It's like mm-hmm. history, politics, and what the world becomes. I mean, right now we're looking at the 21st century as very different from the 20th. And there are many things that perhaps in the 20th century we would not have expected to see hold mm-hmm. in the 23rd century look like. So, I mean, we had a, you know, we had the dark ages, right? There have been book burning ages in many, many countries, in many cultures. This is not new. There, there are sort of examples of it all through history in many countries. So whenever books get burned and libraries get uh, burned, um, so something disappears for a while. So how much of that can remain? you know, of ancient, um, certainly up from antiquity, there are only like scraps of things that we can sort of piece together. And then you have things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which show up and you go, whoa, you know, here, you know, you start putting this together. But a lot of it is just what we piece together. And I can imagine, you know, 15 centuries from now and something like the internet will seem very old fashioned, digital, what gets, what retains from digital will also be similarly like the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, <laughs> you know so, so it's, it's, it's whatever just sort of finds its way into the future. Um, I, I feel like in a way, uh, just from what I hear from you, I'm, I'm wondering, right, as a writer, perhaps mm-hmm. not, it's not so much of like when you ask people about success, I think mm-hmm. it's not even, even hitting the, the points of the, what they really want. I feel like, 
I'm wondering, right? Maybe for you, it, I'm wondering if for a writer, the most important thing is just someone remembering your writings. Mm-hmm. Like someone still reads you. Do you think that's actually a more precise way to think about it? For me, it is. I mean, yeah, I've yeah. said that in the past. I, I sometimes when I'm asked, like, what, what, re- who, who are you writing for? I said, right. I am writing for that unknown person somewhere in some country. Mm-hmm. I don't even know which country or how far in the future who one day picks up one of my works, however they acquire it. Today, you have to say however they acquire it and reads it. And somehow that work still speaks to them over time, over, you know, nation, over space. I've never really sort of worried about who my reader is, particularly. Mm. And I think that's easier for me to say now because I've had readers. But I do imagine, because I remember as a child, the way I picked up books, I had no idea who these writers were. And I read something and somehow it, it, it did something to me. And some of these books were not particularly good pieces of literature. Some of them might have been kind of trashy novels. But whatever they were, they somehow... I read a lot of mystery when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I've read... I have a whole collection of Ellery Queen and Alfred Hitchcock mystery magazines. And, you know, most of them I've forgotten, but I, I still have them. And there were certain stories I remember that struck me. And for whatever reason they did, they planted the seed of something that ultimately fed me as a writer in the future. Um, And the same too for um, the literature that I responded to. I can't tell you why certain poems hit me more than others or certain novels or whatever, but they did at at, at very sort of maybe, like Lolita, for example, Nabokov. Nabokov is a writer that just for some reason I just seem to connect to. And um, I don't want to write like him, but I, I do understand that he unlocked something in me. But by the same token, so did Doris Lessing, you know? So did Marguerite Durand. There were certain writers. I can point to certain writers who were very influential on me. And because they were influential uh, when I was in like, my 20s, when I was a young writer, they stayed with me forever. Um, and I want to be able to... Th- I like to think that my work will have that same impact on some mm. kids somewhere someday, you know? Now in like the age of the globalization or internet mm-hmm. age, perhaps the most important thing is like you mentioned digitizing, but also like translation, right? So oh, uh, yes. Yes. perhaps translation. translation is actually the the key nowadays to, mm-hmm. you know, getting to what any writer really wants is just to communicate mm-hmm. to an audience, right? And so perhaps when we evaluate the functions of prizes, right? Like less is, of course, like prizes, like a Nobel prize, what, one million U.S. dollars, obviously. Oh, yes, it's very it's good. definitely substantial for writers. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, like perhaps uh, other functions such as, okay, does does it promote a type of translation or mm-hmm. uh, spreading you to a wide audience? Mm-hmm. These are also things that maybe we can also think about and consider when we're talking about prizes or the Nobel Prize. Um, yeah, another thing I want to ask you about is, you do talk about authors, you know, like you mentioned mm-hmm. a lot about authors right now. And nowadays in academia, though, uh, we do tend to de-emphasize mm-hmm. the role of the author when we discuss and evaluate literature. And you also mentioned, right, like it seems like in, in your past experience, certain prizes or honors, you were sort of already shut out of it because of, yeah. Yeah, because of your profile. Um, what do you think about the author then now? Yeah, like mm-hmm. this well, the author has been declared dead many times in literature. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, the death of the author is something we keep hearing about. Um, 
this is interesting because um, I, it depends on the genre, I think, because a big and growing genre is creative nonfiction, the memoir. And in that, it's almost impossible to entirely ignore the author. It's not like fiction, you know. In the novel, in fiction, it's probably not a good idea to, to conflate the author with the, with the character because that's not always a good way to think about the literature critically. But in creative nonfiction, I wonder if that's advisable to so disengage it because I, I do teach memoir writing and uh, literary essays and all. Um, and some of who the writer is will always be on the page for a lot of that kind of literature. So I think we're, we're now in a era where um, the memoir novel has become something that is really big, okay, in a way that wasn't true before. So I think in that genre, I'm not so sure you can always divorce it. The thing that I think the author is important to look at for literature, for any literature, is to understand what they were writing in the context of their times. So if you're studying somebody who wrote in during the Spanish Inquisition, you need to sort of know what that Spanish Inquisition meant for literature and for writers at that time, um, including that specific writer. But that's different from saying, like from saying, okay, I'm going to go through the biography of this writer and try to figure out how this connected to this piece. I, I don't know that that's so useful. I'm not big on that myself personally, mm -hmm. but I do feel, I mean, feel that getting some context of what they were writing um, in the times they were writing, especially when it comes to maybe religious or sexual or so of the more taboo kind of subject mm -hmm. literature, how that played in the particular context of their historical uh, yeah. how they were located historically. I'm wondering, though, know, uh, as, as an author yourself, like when people read your texts, mm -hmm. um, like, for example, when I was reading Famine, and, mm -hmm. I, and I, I, I do see bits and pieces of you in there, right? Oh, like the profile yeah. of in New York and Hong Kong. And yeah. there's definitely, and so there's definitely bits and pieces of that. As a, let's say the author of Famine, do you, wish that your your ideal reader your intended reader would you expect them to okay make that connection or do you prefer them to just be like blind and just read it for what it is i think that they can do it both ways i don't yeah, really yeah. care whether they know mm -hmm. much about my history but they i mean famine is located at a certain place in time okay? mm -hmm. we have um airlines we have mm, yeah um, the, I, I name real places, uh, Plaza Hotel, you know, which no longer is what it is, you know, things like that. And, and that has its own history. Um, I talk about Hong Kong and um, a certain kind of um, immig you know, sort of immigrants from China. So understanding how Hong Kong became Hong Kong doesn't hurt in explicating the story. But I think the story by itself is also just a story. And if you don't know all of that too, it's not the most important thing if you're just reading it as a story. Um, if you're reading it in literature class, I think it's the duty of the professor to give some context, you know? But the context is not so much about the author, but about when maybe this was published, when this was written. 
um, what that context might have been. So what might Hong Kong have been like at that time and things like that. I think that that's far more useful for students to understand that they're going to be studying literature. Yeah, uh, perhaps uh, the academic reason, right, why there's a death of the author is simply because mm-hmm. they they feel like, well, the author is serving more of a function, right? And that function does not really have to do much with literature, but more of like a political function, for example. But Foucault talks about is uh, attributing a type of responsibility and accountability to that writer. And so if that writer writes something subversive the mm-hmm. government can find and ban you you know like that type yeah, of, that's true. Type of aggressive mean, way of yeah yeah but not not all writers i mean yeah. i think to be honest most novelists and fiction writers which is my favorite form probably novels and stories we, we like to tell stories mm-hmm. i think uh, storytelling is sort of the impulse that drives a lot of writers um then the uh, there's another impulse which is loving the use of language. So the, the aesthetic possibilities of language is part of it. And these, these concerns have very little to do with what an author represents. I think the idea of representation is the biggest problem sometimes. Like, oh, so here is this Chinese author, a, a pre-communist China Chinese author. So this is what he represents. That's not true. You know, it's like he was writing in that time. So of course everything. So if you think about Lu Xun, I mean, he's probably every uh, the entire Sinosphere's favorite author because everybody finds something about him they can relate to, and the communists have not denied him, right? And yet he was writing very critical pieces about China, about feudalism, about, about all kinds of things, right? Um, but he is still, you know, his his work is just fun to read and his stories are interesting. And he says something about human nature that mm-hmm. is true long after he was dead. And that's, that's to me, uh, and of course, uh, since I don't teach literature, but I teach creative writing, that's what I usually ask my students to look at. How does he manage to convey all this, you know? But yeah, I understand in literature, it's, it's not about what the writer represents, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. I think this is often politicizing of literature, mm-hmm. which I don't mm-hmm. I find very troubling, you know? I totally get like how the author, like you mentioned, often serves as more like a politicization of it, trying to get, yeah. you know, attribute, okay, because the, the author has this profile mm-hmm. and so let's use that as, as at least derive like social implications from that and use that to read and sort of override the literature and actually Mm -hmm. what it means, right? Um, And yet I'm also sometimes thinking about every literature or every just expression behind that expression has an intent or has a voice behind it, right? Like it's just coming from nowhere. So obviously every word sentence Mm -hmm. uh, in in the text has an intent driving behind. Now, of course, we can't recover that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, if we don't at least try to engage with it, then it, we also, as readers, risk misreading it, right? Yeah. Do you think I that think. also perhaps is, uh, that's why maybe the author does is just still be alive, right? Maybe or the, the fact that even though we pronounce it as dead, oftentimes yeah. is still so much alive. Well, I mean, every about. writer knows that they are in their stories, you know, I'm right, right, right. Work in some way, but it's not like, I'm not always, but a writer is not always the best reader of their own work. Of course. Or the best interpreter, you know, so somebody reading you and interpreting you, because I've had people write critically about my work. And it's interesting sometimes when I read 
these and I think, hmm, I don't know, didn't think of that, but yeah, you could, you could say that. Or if they try to classify your work, oh, this is like Gothic, right? This comes up, this is this some of the Gothic tradition here, or here there's something of satire or whatever. I mean, some of it I consciously know, but not all. I, 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 since I'm not really a literature academic, I don't consciously think about all of that. I just know that I'm writing and then what comes out at the end, I look at it and I'm going, oh, why did I write that? You know, I don't think a writer entirely knows what they're writing. Um, but yes, you're influenced by your political beliefs, by your social cultural beliefs, um, by your own personal experience of how you experience life. Because most of writing is sort of reflecting back life. Whether you write science fiction, romance or mystery or just a straight narrative, you're reflecting back in some fashion the world you live in and how you've experienced it. You can't get away from that because who you are is always somewhat on the page, you know? It's just that, you know, fiction has way, you know, it has conventions, right? Literature has conventions. You have metaphor, you have imagery, you have, you know, you can use all these different things, you know, to, to, to sort of create um, art, you know? So, mm -hmm. and that's what you, you draw on, but that's technique. That's all just a technical side of it. Um, mm -hmm. So you, you have a, a protagonist and here's what the protagonist is going to do. And, and it's an artifice at the end of the day. Even creative nonfiction is an artifice. So, you know, it's sort of something outside of yourself. And then once it's out there, it's not yours anymore. Mm -hmm. It belongs to the reader in a way. I feel like in t when you are, in terms of your appreciation of literature, uh, you are definitely more interested in the, the text itself rather oh, than yeah, with the intent <laughs> of the author of stories, right? Um, and that, of course, is the, the new criticism uh, approach of it. And what's so interesting, I feel like, is let's say we go back to the Nobel Prize. Yeah. The Nobel Prize, for the most part, rewards a body of work and so it, it's, right. it's not just uh not one book yeah one, one book and so it's you have to recognize the author is at the forefront of it because it's just like mm -hmm. talking about life's work that's right uh but so maybe i can ask you is do you prefer well i mean i guess it's not a matter of pre preference but but let's say it is uh a prize that is reward awarded for an author or a prize awarded for a book like how That's how would you question. compare? Yeah. Because I mean, there are a lot of prizes that are just for a book, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I one of the reasons I find the Nobel interesting mm. at all is because it is a life's it, it is a life's work, you know, and which is why some Nobel prizes seem a little odd compared to others, you know, um, because what an author has produced over a period of time and has been recognized for. Nobel prizes are generally given to somebody who's had some recognition in their own country mm. or in some fashion, you know? So um, I think that, okay, think about Toni Morrison, for example, mm. who did with Nobel in America. I was reading her long before she even won the National Book Award, okay? And um, I knew that I, I had her in grad school. I was reading her in grad school. Teacher had assigned it. And I knew that I was reading something that was so different and I've never read anything like this before. And it taught me something about both the African-American experience, the woman's experience. And, and I clearly, this was, she was an amazing, she's an amazing intellect. Okay. She was a real thinker and her use of, it was, she was innovative and inventive in language. It wasn't the easiest literature to read. But I found myself just drawn to that. I understand that it is 
what she achieved over a period of time that made her work so powerful and important. Um, so I, I do think that uh, in a way that recognition of what an author has achieved, and as, especially if he or she has produced a number of works that continue to command our attention, then I, I, there is some real value in that. I mean, even like um, the various prizes in the US, they do have sort of sort of kind of lifetime achievement awards like the Academy Awards, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I think that there is something to be said for the artist who has provided us over the course of their lives something greater than themselves, you know? Hmm. On the other hand, you have those one book wonders, you know? I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird is still a very <laughs> important book today, you know? Um, even though, I mean really wasn't the book she set out to write, which is quite interesting. But um, it remains important, especially in America, because it speaks to race, it speaks to injustice, it speaks to, um, and it's also this young girl's coming of age in a way, which is always a compelling thing. The way the diary of Anne Frank remains to this day, this very powerful statement, not just about the Holocaust, but, but about a young girl who clearly had a talent for writing, and that desire to write. So that's why I, I make people read Anne Frank still today, because I think it's, especially for writers, you want to know how to be a writer, like, look at Anne Frank, you know? Here she is hiding in the attic, and she, she's able to, to produce this amazing diary, you know? And look at how she observes the people around her, her family and all that. I mean, that's the observational qualities of a writer. So, I mean, I think Anne Frank is one of those rather important books that we, we can't neglect, you know? And mm. had she lived... Had she lived, she would have probably produced a body of work. She had a good possibility of doing that. The, 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 the potential was there. You know, we don't yeah. know, of course, now. But I think you, you reminded us that the importance of the sort of the scope, right, between mm. the Nobel and just uh, other prizes that focus on a specific work is, mm. you know, when, like, yeah, you mentioned like uh, Anne Frank, Kill the Mockingbird, you know, individual works. Let's say yeah, the authors didn't have like a huge body of work to no, go for, no. but a single work itself can still have that universal transcending experience That's of sorts, right? That the Nobel Prize does try to recognize, but yet the Nobel Prize is not about... It's not about that. Happened. It's about living yeah. this for one thing, yeah. And so I feel like because the prize, the Nobel Prize, the scope of it is trying to recognize the body, a body of work, uh -huh. it has inevitably has to sh shed light and include uh, the author, right? Sort of highlight it in a yes, way. They, they can't get away from it. <laughs> and therefore, it's also hard to get away with all the stuff that we mentioned earlier at the very beginning, like the stuff about identity politics, you know? I'm just wondering, right? It, it, perhaps, because oftentimes people do complain about, hey, the Nobel Prize, you, you mentioned like you associated with world literature, but then uh -huh. so national because it's it, national. and it's also very Eurocentric, you know. It's yeah, it's also very Eurocentric. You know, to go out to Africa, to Asia, to you know, yeah. country to other parts of the world, South America. We don't we don't have enough of that. But but then again, you know, it was it started in Sweden for heaven's sakes, you know. So exactly. <laughs> in the earlier years of the Nobel. You know, the Nordic countries did rather well because that's what they saw as their literature. You know, that's what they mm -hmm. saw as literature. That's what was available to them. And yeah, it has. It is definitely Eurocentric. There's no question. Mm -hmm. 
And I just feel like when people complain about, you know, like the, it's too political and stuff, I, then I guess it's kind of like a necessary evil because <laughs> it's, it has to include the author because it's a lifetime achievement award, yeah. you know? So yeah, no, because I, I mentioned this is, um, you know, when, when people talk about, let's say, Gaussian Jen when he won the Nobel Prize <laughs> and critics would say, OK, you know, you're focusing too much about his uh, experience in China, like the political yeah. experience and stuff. And you're not reading his text, you're not reading, you know, his stuff he written in French and stuff like that. But That's, That was very interesting, Gaussian Jen yeah. because, you know, in Hong Kong and in the Sinosphere, he was probably better known for some of his plays and his other works, but really it was because Soul Mountain was translated by that mm. Australian Chinese mm, yeah. translator that, yeah. that the Nobel people could read it. Mm, this is mm, the feeling mm. of the community, okay? And we know that the Literature Prize had a big scandal. So there is that too. So if you're looking at the Nobel Prize in literature, you can't get away from also the mechanism behind it and what... Sure kind of fell apart there. Um, okay, maybe we can end with a question about Hong Kong writers and the Nobel Prize. Simply, the, the question is, you know, any, like for you being part of that circle of Hong Kong literature, um, who would you think would could be up for uh, the Nobel Prize in literature? Well, actually, Sai Sai has already been up for it. Mm-hmm. Last year, she was on the list. She was definitely, mm-hmm. we heard that she was definitely mm. one of the people that they were considering, you know, because um, her translator, Jennifer Feely, mm. won a big award in America, the National, I think it was the National Endowment of the Arts Award. And she's translating Sai Sai's, um, it's about her breast cancer, uh, the kind of memoir fiction, you know, you know well, Sai Sai's writing is always a little bit, you know, whatever. So I think that that is something, I mean, her work is being looked at now, and and she won the Newstead Prize um, in world in world literature, you know. So um, she's definitely somebody who is up there, I think. Um, mm. Of all the people, the person who would have been had he lived was P.K. Lam. Mm. I don't know, in Guan, you know, Yassi, yeah. Yassi, yeah. But Yasi Yasi was a friend of mine, and it was really sad when he died. You know, he was young, still, only in fifties. And I was so upset because um, I saw him just a few months before he died and we had dinner together. And he was, it was very hopeful at the time. His treatment was going very well. So we thought, oh, okay, maybe he will survive cancer. You know, because people do survive cancer, but then sometimes it gets people to really got them. Mm. But I think he would have definitely been a contender. Mm. Those are the and two parts right now. Yeah, Sai Sai and... and, and okay. Uh, but you, now that he's died, he, he's not. Uh, oh no, he's not eligible. If you were to write some sort of nomination statement uh, for these two writers for the the Swedish Academy to consider mm-hmm. them, like how would you approach this task to nominate them? Like, what would you include? I think yeah. this that they both embrace the cosmopolitan culture of what Hong Kong mm. was, because both of them were really in tune with the literatures of the world. You can see that in both their work. They make reference to it and things like that, you know? Um, Sai Sai was, is, is very inventive in use of language and in the way she looked at Hong Kong from the beginning, you know, like my city. The first time I read it, I didn't quite know what to make of it, but you know, I was like, I get it. 
she understands the the kind of floating world we're in. And the floating world, of course, is a long tradition in Chinese literature. But she also, I think, she seems to connect into like the surrealists, I sort of yeah, feel. Yeah, the Magritte paintings and such, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. I, I really think that she understands that that somehow captures the spirit of what we can think about being in Hong Kong. Because Hong Kong is, you know, borrowed place, borrowed time. You know, we're such an anomaly. And I think that both these writers well, could be very local on the one hand, especially uh, PK, because PK would write about very Hong Kong things, food, fashion, you know, film, whatever, you know. He, he was really tapped into, and place. He had all these wonderful poems about, like the Yama Day Ferry, about, you know, North Point Ferry, about, you know, about all kinds of things that are very iconic local sites in Hong Kong that anybody in Hong Kong would, of his generation especially, would understand. Um, and he drew also from his, uh, in some of his prose, he drew from his own personal experience because he moved house. <laughs> he moved out to the, and I, I remember this one wonderful essay he wrote that's about moving out. The interesting thing is that both of them were quite fluent in English as well. Yeah. Uh, are, I mean, in the case of Sai I mean, I know that uh, PK, I mean, he was a translation person, you know, and he actually wrote a few poems in English, not very many. Mm -hmm. He actually wrote with you. And he, he participates in the translation of his work. Uh, Dong Kai Jung does also. Mm -hmm. um, and I can understand why they do, because they really are bilingual. And they are inter intellectuals, intelligentsia, who, who were in that position teaching in the university, which is all English medium, you know? So, so they, they really embrace the multi-bicultural, cosmopolitan nature of Hong Kong, as well as the very local, uh, I mean, tea coffee, you know, the mm. kind of tea coffee. PK has a poem about that. It, that's something so Hong Kong, so local, you know? Um, and I think that the, the ability to be both local, yet connect to the world, because that is, that is what Hong Kong is or has been. And it's very yeah, Cantonese. Like, it's very Cantonese. Yeah, yeah. Now, PK is much more Cantonese-based mm -hmm. than Sai Sai, okay? But doesn't matter. The written Chinese still remains pretty much the same, you know? From what I heard, one thing that you, you highlight both has common is they are very uh, cosmopolitan, like you mentioned, like mix of... Uh, mix of various cultures, right? That is someone something that I feel like the it will really suit the Nobel Prize's taste, right? Like which is the sort of like problematic nationalities, right? Where mm -hmm. you're not really just very Something. Hong Kong authentic yeah. local, but you also mix it with other experiences and culture. But I should add to that too that Hong Kong doesn't have a very vast literature mm -hmm. in either mm -hmm. Chinese or English. It just isn't. I mean, and part of that is that we're a very commercial space. Taiwan has much more literature, really, because Taiwan bothers to publish literature. Hong Kong, Hong Kong publishers are not good. I mean, they publish junk. They publish a lot of junk, okay? Much more so. Whereas if you want, I mean, Sai Sai and, and PK were both published in Taiwan. Uh, all the younger writers, they, a lot of them are published in Taiwan. They, you know, anybody writing in Chinese in the science Taiwan is a much better space for, for, for mm -hmm. literature. Hong Kong just isn't. So, if you were going to say a Hong Kong writer, you have to be honest and say there isn't a rich literary tradition here in English or Chinese, you know? So that's also a consideration. It's a very young space. Yeah. Singapore has a, a richer tradition. Where? Singapore? 
Yeah. Even Singapore has a more richer tradition than us, so really. They actually study their literature, they read it, and they read into mm. Southeast Asian diaspora ah. too. Mm. You know, and there's there's all the language. In Singapore, you have Malay, you have Chinese, right, right, right. You have you have English, you know, you have Tamil, you know. The thing I want to bring up is like if someone were to nominate like what writer would really represent Hong Kong or like widely read, I would feel like someone like Gam Yong would be probably up there and mm-hmm. Ngai Hong would be somebody up mm-hmm. there, but they don't write in, uh, they don't have that necessarily that type of cosmopolitan, no, like don't. transcultural right. uh, slant as uh, Yasi or Sai Sai. Yeah, right? so, and I'm inclined yeah. to think that Hong Kong um, in uh, as a cultural space, is more interesting for its for its funny mixture of mm. because we are a we were a former British colony, and I think both Sai Sai and Yasi's writing recognize that. You know? But what's why well, I feel like you know that's the, another thing that the, the Nobel Prize also has a lot of controversies about, right? Because like when you select mm-hmm. a writer, okay, this is the writer that we're gonna pick from Hong Kong as the Nobel Prize and people just be like, you don't represent me. Like this writer does not represent. Because to be fair, I think Yasi and Sai Sai are not as widely read as Gamyo, right? Or like no. the popular fiction writers. The popular fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, then that, even for Gamyo, right? Yes, he's a popular fiction martial arts writer, but mm-hmm. you know, he, his, he, has a, he has a special collection. He has a museum mm-hmm. corner in the Hong Kong Cultural Museum, History Museum, right? So. But pop, He's culture canonized, never been, right? pop culture has never been the Nobel's literary culture. Hong Kong has a lot of pop culture. And For pop sure, culture yeah. is not the same as literary culture. And I think, I think perhaps yeah. there was a distinction there. Um, and, and Hong Kong doesn't even teach its own literature. That's, that's where I think the Nobel Prize or just any prize has that very interesting function on a social level, right? It gets people debate about what, what is literature. Is literature. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, like you mentioned, like, okay, so the pop culture is not often on the radar of the Nobel Prize, but then you have Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. So when you have Bob Dylan, it's almost like anything can happen. The thing about Bob Dylan, though, is that if you ask a lot of American poets, especially, right. yeah. they absolutely believe he's a poet. You know? Right, for sure. So for this sure. is this is he has been recognized in the literary culture of America. Mm. Now, did I think that was a good choice of prize? I'm saying no. I, I, mm-hmm. I'm not. I, I felt that that was a real cop out for the Nobel. But you know, that's my opinion. You know, and, and of course, I favor fiction. I would rather see Don DeLillo win. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, for sure. That, that too. He's my, you know, he's my American literature. You know, whatever. But um, and then Philip Roth, of course, always wanted to win and he didn't. Um, so I mean, it, it's really a question of I, I don't think the Nobel has yet really been that clearly in pop culture. Mm-hmm. I would find it almost an insult to any intelligentsia in Hong Kong if they picked pop cultural. <laughs> you know. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I That's would. a good point. Yeah, I would because now even our films. You know, we have popular films. You have all the martial arts, have all the police films, right? But we also have, you know, um, we also have some very um, uh, art. We have art films. Yeah, for sure, we for can. sure. We have, you know, we have a lot of people. You know, so I think that in film, there's been more opportunity for an expression of art. 
and and I don't I'm sorry martial arts and all that that's you know we have we have you know Vim diesel here in America so what you know mm-hmm. it's not what literature is made of now does literature have space for say science fiction or speculative or even you know um, the kind of anime that is sort of infused into everyday culture probably you know g- graphic novels have become a very big like graphic memoirs are becoming very big here in the US you know and a lot of the, the, the really good ones have a kind of artistic sensibility that is not just the popular comic book you know there's mm. Spider-Man and then there's where you go from that and who reads it you know that's the thing and do you teach it in school yeah it's just a funny thing because like I now of course as a teacher it's it's hard well, sometimes it's sometimes hard to get students to read literature, like read novels, short stories and stuff like that. Like, even, yeah. So I feel like if other media could get you to think about similar topics as a novel or short story would mm-hmm. or a poem would, then I wonder, should that also count, like expand the definition of literature or there's something I mean, yeah, maybe that's a question or maybe one question we can end off with. Like for you, like what is literature then? You know, is, is there, it's still the written yeah. word for me. Is It has to be a written word, yeah? It's still the written word because it's language. Um, this literature emerges out of language. Now, will that written word, because especially because of technology, will that somehow transform probably? Will we perhaps have more crossover with visual arts of film, you know, um, video, um, just art in general, photography, probably. I think that that's almost inevitable because, you know, if you think about TikTok, for example, it's like kind of the most, a very popular social media thing. It's all about just getting on there and looking a certain way, you know, and, and dancing or whatever, you know. So um, performance will take on a new meaning in, a, in an internet world, which becomes much more a way of self-expression. So what becomes creative expression, which literature is, is, is becoming so much more amorphous. It's all kind of mixing in together. We certainly know that there are plenty of artists now who are using text in their art. You know, erasure, we see that in visual arts, just like we see it in poetry. So I think that there's going to be much more crossover in the future, but it still begins with language and the written word. I really think so. And in fiction, probably in story, I think story isn't going to go away. Mm-hmm. Because in gaming, because, uh, you know, some, some of my MFA graduates and the people I know yeah. of that world, they go into gaming to write for gaming because yeah, yeah. that's still creative writing of some form, but it's a commercial application. And a game is not the same as a, a book, you know, or, 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 or what we think of as a book or reading, you know? Because, I mean, until language disappears, which I don't think it has yet, you know, and, unless everything becomes emojis, <laughs> you know, it'll yeah. probably still be the written word. Thank you for listening, and we hope you have enjoyed this conversation. You can learn more about the cultural life of the Nobel Prize in Literature and Nobel Cultural Life wordpress.com Please also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. The Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast is hosted by Michael Kachi Chuk. The production team is Wilma Komala, Brian Chen, Sadei Wong, Audrey Chen, Selim Wong, and Gwen Wong.